2: We bring you news and analysis every day on the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. But now you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today.
1: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keane and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. There is this question of whether this is enough of a disinflationary effect to really give people confidence that inflation and the disinflation that we're seeing now is more than just transitory. Jay Bryson over at Wells Fargo, chief economist there joining us now. Uh, What's your thought just now to start with, Jay, on what we just saw in the CPI print that did come in just a bit hotter than expected?
3: Yeah, Lisa, I mean, I'll, I'll use a phrase here that I think John is probably familiar with it. You know, this was kind of a damp squib. Um, it's kind of, uh, right? I mean, I don't think it's going to change anybody's view of what's going on in the economy. I don't think it changes anyone's view, um, you know, at the Federal Reserve uh, about this. Um, I think, it, you know, maybe in general it kind of keeps them in play. It keeps the possibility of another rate hike, uh, probably not at November, maybe December alive. But in general, it, it's, it's kind of what I, I think most of us kind of assumed was, was going to happen.
1: Damp squib, I actually had to look it up. It means an event that is not as exciting or popular as people thought it would be. I'm curious though, Jay, the fact that we got an upside surprise with PPI yesterday and the smallest of upside surprises on CPI now. Are you surprised we're not seeing more of a reaction in markets that have been responding to winds blowing in another room over the past couple of days?
3: Well, you know, as you know, we had just a tremendous backup in yields over the last few weeks here. And so, um, you know, I think the market is just trying to find this equilibrium right now. And, you know, again, I don't think this was big enough to really change sentiment all that much. You know, if we, you know, if we would have printed you know, another 0.6 on the headline and a 0.4 on the core, then I could see much more of, a, of a, a market reaction here. But just given all the price action we've seen over the last two weeks, in some sense, it's not all that surprising to me. We haven't seen a bigger reaction this morning to this this data.
1: What it does highlight, though, is something that you and Sarah House have been speaking about for quite a while, which is the final mile and how difficult it is to get inflation back down to 2%. How much does this edify just how difficult that battle is, given the fact that we're seeing signs that goods inflation is starting to reignite.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, for us, it you know, boils down to services, right? Services represent more than 60 percent of the overall CPI. I mean, I don't know what, the, you know, the, the so-called super core was. This is services x housing uh, but that's been running, you know, we're, we've been getting point four sort of numbers on that. And so that last mile to get us back down to two percent on a sustained basis, uh, you know, that that's that's tough. And that's why the Fed is probably going to re- remain restrictive, you know, for quite some time to make sure that that does come down. And so what you have to do is you have to have, and they, they said this in the minutes, uh, the FOMC minutes the other day, you have to have subtrend growth for a while to uh, to, to bring that down to 2%. And I'm, I'm afraid that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few quarters is kind of subtrend economic growth.
4: The report also talks about the increase in the gasoline index as a major contributor to the rise. How difficult does the current geopolitical environment make the fact that uh, this gasoline index potentially has potential to continue to rise, to make this 2% even that much harder?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And if you look at, you know, if you look what's happened since, uh, let's call it late September or so, gasoline prices have actually come down pretty significantly, like, on the, you know, 15 $0.20 cents a gallon or something like that. You know, what's going on right now in the Middle East will probably stop that uh, that um, that decline right there. And if, if things obviously heat up over in the Middle East and you start talking about, you know, potentially Iran going offline in terms of, uh, you know, pumping 3 million or so barrels a day, then that's obviously going to put upward pressure on, on oil prices, and that would arrest that downward um, trend that we've seen, at least in the last two weeks in terms of gasoline prices.
4: Do you start to consider that and put that into how you were thinking about the next year or so
3: so I I guess what I would the way I would characterize that to our inflation forecast is it's an upside risk I mean at this point just given how fluid that situation in the Middle East is, I don't know if we would necessarily try to factor that in right now. And so, you know, we would come up with some sort of point estimate in terms of our our view in terms of inflation over the coming, uh, you know, year or so. uh, And we would say, well, maybe the risks are are a little bit skewed to the upside here. Um, And and so we'll just have to keep an eye on what's going on over there. Uh, But keep in mind that gasoline itself (coughs) represents a pretty small part of the the CPI. I think it's only like 6% or something like that. It's pretty small. And so you'd have to see a uh, you know, pretty significant increase in gasoline prices that was sustained to have a, you know, a lasting impact on the overall rate of inflation.
1: Jay Bryson of Wells Fargo, thank you so much for being with us. If- we do wanna parse through what the response has been to the CPI report. Joining us now, David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist at JPMorgan Asset Management. I just would love to get your thoughts, David, on whether the uh, CPI, the PPI coming in hotter than expected, Moves the needle anywhere on your radar, even just a touch?
2: Not really. Uh, First of all, on the CPI, I think it was close to being exactly on expectations. The one thing that seemed to be stronger than people had expected was um, hotels. Uh, Hotel rates had fallen a very sharp 3.6% in the prior month. They jumped 4.2% this month. And that was one of the things that pushed up shelter costs. And if you take that out, there's there's really not much else going on here. Meanwhile, we're looking very closely at the price of gasoline, because what's happening is even though crude oil prices are holding in at fairly high levels, we've seen refiner margins come crashing down. And so the price of a gallon of gasoline is now 19 cents lower than it was a month ago. And so I think that bodes well for, for a better reading for October CPI. So right now, I think we're still on track. I think we're on track for, CPI, for year-over-year headline CPI being at 2% or less in the fourth quarter of next year, and the consumption to also being at 2% or less by the fourth quarter of next year. And that's one year ahead of the Fed's target. And, and that's, the, you know, so overall, this report makes me, you know, I mean, I'm still very optimistic that inflation is coming down. And meanwhile, we do have these other issues I and mean, we do, we, had, we have this expanding UAW strike. I think the uh, continued sort of chaos in Washington makes it quite possible that we'll have a government shutdown. Um, in November. So I think there are, um, you know, there's still plenty of weights on the economy here. And certainly when I look at inflation, I still think it's coming down.
4: When you look at this report though, very much so feels like status quo. How much harder is it going to be to get to that 2%? Well,
2: I don't think it's gonna be that hard. I mean, it's a lot of this has to do with year over year changes and and bases. So if you look at the core CPI, it came down from 4.4% year over year to 4.1%. And actually core is gonna keep on coming down. Uh, over the next next few months, and then you know, as I said, I, I think the energy story is gradually getting better. I think the economy will grow more s- slowly in the fourth quarter and next year. So, and then and then the last thing is shelter. We know that that owner's equivalent rent, actual rents, as as the government reports, some lag reality on the ground when it comes to negotiated rents. And we're not seeing any increase going on in the actual rental market. We're not seeing any increase going on in actual new car prices uh, since the start of this this year. So we think that that will all tend to push away at transportation or cut away at transportation services and at shelter costs. And that's really where our forecast of 2% inflation by the end of next year is coming from. Does that make you bullish or bearish? Um, Slightly slightly bullish. I I think you have to pick and choose here. The overall U.S. equity market's not cheap. Uh, but it's very bifurcated between those uh, top 10 stocks or top seven stocks and everything else. The rest of the market is looking like pretty good value here. I would also say the bond market's pretty good value here. I mean, if if I'm right that inflation gets down to 2%, then a 10-year Treasury at about 4.5% sounds about right, and we actually could get a little bit of a capital gain when inevitably we trip into recession at some stage in the next year or two.
1: We've been trying to wrap our head around some of the whipsaw action that we've seen in 10-year treasury yields and 30-year treasury yields. We've had softer than expected uh, auctions yesterday of the 10-year. Today, we have one of the 30-year. There's been a question of how much is technical and how much is a larger lack of certainty about what the ultimate inflation paradigm is going to look like, not to mention uh, fiscal. From your vantage point, does this volatility make this market less investable or more investable? (sighs)
2: Well, it's 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 disconcerting, of course, for investors, but if you're a long-term investor, just look at the prices and don't worry about the day-to-day action. Uh, because a lot of this is whipsaw, as you say, but over the course of a year or two years or 10 years. Um, it, it'll diminish. I do think that there, there is something important going on, on the fiscal side and we just got the Congressional Budget Office numbers uh, on their estimates uh, on the budget deficit on, on Monday evening and it looks, it looks like this fiscal year it, it, or last fiscal year came in at $1.7 trillion, this fiscal year probably about $2 trillion. You add in the fact that the Fed is uh, you know, uh, returning bonds to the market and the federal government is having to borrow about two and a half to three trillion dollars every year. From global public capital markets, and that is an enormous lift. And that does suggest that when, when long-term yields come down, they're not going to come down to you know one percent or two percents. There is a floor to how low long-term bonds can come down. So what I'd say is you know buy bonds for income, buy them for to diversify your portfolio. Uh, but don't expect a big capital gain from bonds because I think there is a limit to how far rates could fall given how much the government has to borrow.
4: When you look at the fiscal trajectory though, of the United States, you see a lot of the dysfunction that goes on in Washington. The fighting is about a very small sliver of the U.S. budget. Is Can we ever really deal with the fiscal health of the United States until we start looking at the defense budget or things like entitlements, these mandatory spending right. measures?
2: Well, it's not just on the spending side. It's also on the tax side. I mean, we, the reason we have big budget deficits today is because we had two huge wars over a very long period. We had two major tax cuts, one of them which was extended. Um, and, we've had, uh, and we've had a pandemic and a global financial crisis in which the government just poured money at the problem. And we didn't pay for any of it. The reason we've got big budget deficits is, is because politicians te- treat us like children uh, and we accept it. Um, So, uh, I I completely agree with you that what they're talking about today is just a complete sideshow. You can't deal with the budget deficit without either raising taxes or cutting defense, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and Social Security, or both. You simply can't. Um, And we need to have these tough discussions, but I don't expect that anytime soon. So I think we will be looking at rising deficits or rising debt and and very high deficits for many years to come.
1: David Kelly of
0: JPMorgan Asset Management, thank you so much.
5: There
1: is this question
5: of whether this
1: is enough of a disinflationary effect to really give people confidence that inflation and the disinflation that we're seeing now is more than just transitory. Jay Bryson over at Wells Fargo, chief economist there joining us now. Uh, What's your thought just now to start with, Jay, on what we just saw in the CPI print that did come in just a bit hotter than expected?
3: Yeah, Lisa, I mean, I'll, I'll use a phrase here that I think John is probably familiar with, it. you know, this was kind of a damp squib. Um, it's kind of, ah, uh, right? I mean, I don't think it's going to change anybody's view of what's going on in the economy. I don't think it changes anyone's view, um, you know, at the Federal Reserve uh, about this. Um, I think, it, you know, maybe in general it kind of keeps them in play. It keeps the possibility of another rate hike, uh, probably not at November, maybe December alive, but in general it, it's, it's kind of what I, I think most of us kind of assumed was, was going to happen.
1: Damp squib, I actually had to look it up. It means an event that is not as exciting or popular as people thought it would be. I'm curious though, Jay, the fact that we got an upside surprise with PPI yesterday and the smallest of upside surprises on CPI now. Are you surprised we're not seeing more of a reaction in markets that have been responding to winds blowing in another room over the past couple of days?
3: Well, you know, as you know, we had just a tremendous backup in yields over the last few weeks here. And so, um, you know, I think the market is just trying to find this equilibrium right now. And, you know, again, I don't think this was big enough to really change sentiment all that much. You You know, if we would have printed you know, another 0.6 on the headline and a 0.4 on the core, then I could see much more of, a, of a, a market reaction here. But just given all the price action we've seen over the last two weeks, in some sense, it's not all that surprising to me. We haven't seen a bigger reaction this morning to this, this data.
1: What it does highlight, though, is something that you and Sarah House have been speaking about for quite a while, which is the final mile and how difficult it is to get inflation back down to 2%. How much does this edify just how difficult that battle is given the fact that that we're seeing signs that goods inflation is starting to reignite.
3: Yeah, so I mean, you know, for, for us, it you know boils down to services, right? Services represent more than sixty percent of the overall CPI. I mean, I don't know what the, you know the, the so-called super core was. This is services x housing, uh, but that's been running. You know, we're, we've been getting 0.4 sort of numbers on that, and so that last mile to get us back down to two percent on a sustained basis. You know, that, that's, that's tough, and that's why the Fed is probably going to re- remain restrictive you know, for quite some time to make sure that that does come down. And so what you have to do is you have to have, and they, they said this in the minutes, uh, the FOMC minutes the other day, you have to have subtrend growth for a while to, uh, to, to bring that down to 2%. And I'm, I'm afraid that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few quarters is kind of subtrend economic growth.
4: The report also talks about the increase in the gasoline index as a major contributor to the rise. How difficult does the current geopolitical environment make the fact that uh, this gasoline index potentially has potential to continue to rise, to make this 2% even that much harder?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And if you look at, you know, if you look what's happened since, uh, let's call it late September or so, gasoline prices have actually come down pretty significantly, like, on the, you know, 15 20 cents a gallon or something like that. You know, what's going on right now in the Middle East will probably stop that uh, that, um, that decline right there. And if if things obviously heat up over in the Middle East and you start talking about, you know, potentially Iran going offline in terms of, uh, you know, pumping 3 million or so barrels a day, then that's obviously going to put upward pressure on, on oil prices and that would arrest that downward um, trend that we've seen at least in the last two weeks in terms of gasoline prices.
4: Do you start to... Consider that and put that into how you were thinking about the next year or so
3: So I I guess what I would the way I would characterize that to our inflation forecast is it's an upside risk I mean at this point just given how fluid that situation in the Middle East is, I don't know if we would necessarily try to factor that in right now. And so, you know, we would come up with some sort of point estimate in terms of our our view in terms of inflation over the coming, uh, you know, year or so. uh, And we would say, well, maybe the risks are are a little bit skewed to the upside here. Um, And and so we'll just have to keep an eye on what's going on over there. Uh, But keep in mind that gasoline itself represents a pretty small part of the the CPI. I think it's only like 6% uh, or something like that. It's pretty small. And so you'd have to See you a know, pretty significant increase in gasoline prices that was sustained to have a you know a lasting impact on the overall rate of inflation.
1: Jay Bryson of Wells Fargo, thank you so much for being with us.
3: With us around the table,
6: I'm pleased to say Michael Schau, CEO of Marketfield Asset Management. Morning, Michael. Morning. I want to go back to this Jim Bianco question I asked in the last hour. I think it's worth asking of you because I know mm-hmm. your answer to it. So we can have a broader conversation oh, about glad it.
7: glad someone knows the answer. The
6: disinflation <laughs> we've seen over the last few months,
7: is that yes. transitory? I think so, yes. Why? Well, because I, I think you had this big shocking COVID of excess demand and constricted constricted supply. And that created a lot of, a lot of took a long time, but it was transitory inflation. And now you have a sort of transitory deflation. And what you see is that end demand is still there for physical goods. Uh, and you've seen PPI start to spin around back into positive territory. And I, I think CPI will follow course. now. I would stress it's not going to be a wave anything like as powerful as what we saw in, in 21, 22 but I think it is going to stop CPI getting back into the twos and staying there. CPI is going to be sticky.
6: Is it a mistake to sound like you might be done then at the Federal Reserve?
7: Um, well, I mean, my view, I said it last time I was on, it's really about the long end of the curve, not the short end of the curve now. The Fed has sort of boxed itself into a corner. I don't really care if it stops at 5.50 or 5.75. Because if you look at the range of, of long term yields, I mean, the 10 year was at 350 in May and was knocking on 5 percent a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I think that, that's really the question. I think the Fed has done what it's going to do in this monetary cycle. I think it's going to step away. Um, I'm of a view that at some point in time, we're not there yet, That you're going to see some form of yield curve control brought in to stabilize the bond market. Um, but that's, you know, that's not this week. That's not this Wait, month. Hold on a
1: second. Yield curve control in the United States. Yeah. Does I, that mean that essentially they're going to hold rates high, but that they're going to accelerate quantitative easing, like they're going to qu- accelerate well, purchases in the long end? I think
7: at the end of the day, financial stability is the unspoken mandate of the Federal Reserve. They talk a lot about unemployment and inflation. But when when things really come to a head, financial stability is, is, is number one. And we, we saw a taste of it. Exactly, this time last year in the UK, when the gilt's market briefly briefly dislocated, you know, I, I'm of the view that the Fed um, doesn't really have things under control. It's certainly not in control of the fiscal policy of this country. The fiscal policy of this country is is reckless in the extreme, um, and uh, you know, I think at some point in the foreseeable future you're going to have disorder at the long end of the curve. And I think that's going to be important enough that it, it becomes something the Federal Reserve get, get, gets involved in.
1: So is that kind of what equity buyers are banking on? That essentially when they say, when they come out and they say, stocks can handle Bonds where they are, yields where they are. Are they basically saying because if they get out of control, the Fed's going to step in regardless of what's going on with inflation?
7: No, I, I think they're just not thinking about it. I, I think, I mean, I think that that people spend an awful lot of time worrying about monetary policy over the short term, and and the, the Fed feeds into this. They're constantly out there talking and, and like sort of hinting maybe we'll do this, maybe maybe may, maybe we'll do that, and and the sort of general sense the Federal Reserve wants to get out there is that it is somehow in control of things. That it's palpably not in control of. I mean, I'd argue it's had no effect on inflation. It's, it's totally lucky that inflation went away. It didn't go away because of what the Fed did. It went away in spite of what the Fed did.
6: Supply side rebalancing, is yes, that what, absolutely. what's happened?
7: Absolutely, yes. Do you think that won't be sufficient then to get inflation down anymore? Have we seen the bulk of that? Um, I think we've seen I think we've seen the bulk of it now. The long end of the curve may have its own form of discipline. You know, I've said, I've said before that, the, 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 you know, effectively nothing that happened from last October to, last, to, to this August really got transmitted to the long end of the curve. You know, that's no longer true. We, we've now transmitted another 75 to 100 basis points of tightening to the long end of the curve. The question is, is really what happens next? Typically, those sell-offs can become self limiting because ultimately you start to worry
6: about a slowdown and people yes, buy treasuries absolutely. again. What I hear from you is that you think the budget deficit is a financial stability risk that this is going to have to respond to. Now, if that's the case, let's run with that. Mm-hmm. Where does that leave the dollar?
7: Um, the question is whether this is unique to the United States or whether it's, uh, or whether it's something, of a global, something of a global malaise. If it's, if it's unique to the United States, the dollar gets significantly weaker. If there's a host of, of G7 countries which are running similar deficits and have forced down similar paths, then it's a hard asset story.
1: If this is the case, then do you foresee a certain level, a certain trigger for the Fed to step in and be able to justify additional purchases at a time where inflation yep. is still expected to be hot?
7: I don't think it's a, there's a magical yield number. I don't think 5% or 5.25 in the 10-year suddenly gets the Fed jumping up and down. It's more the orderly functioning of markets. You can have a very orderly market with a tenure at 5%. You could have a very disorderly market at, with, with the tenure at 5%. I mean, I think the quality of, of auctions, I think the amount of bids that they get, I think the aftermarket response post auctions matters a great deal. Uh, You know, it wasn't that the yield in the UK was so high this time last year, but it was clearly a disorderly market. There was clearly massive force selling in the institutional community. And that's when a central bank wakes up extremely quickly.
6: And fiscal policy risk was at the epicentre of that as well. Let's finish here. I can hear people screaming at home. Listen to this. Do I buy stocks or sell them? (laughs) What do I do oh, if uh, all this yeah, I happens? I think
7: in the short term, you know, for I think f- there's an investable market rebound here, and and uh, I still think there's portions of the equity market that are that are doing okay. Is Washington listening,
6: AMH, to this?
4: <laughs> well. A lot of people are, but it doesn't mean they're going to react on it.
7: The
6: privilege of acting recklessly just seems to have been lost.
4: This is the whole thing Moody's is talking about. It's the idea of governance that is not going in the direction that it should, that is concerning them. Yeah, but if
1: any of these officials are looking to the stock market for any validation of their concern, we hear all of these incredibly doomy and gloomy prognostications. And then investor after investor says, but actually this makes stocks a pretty good buy for now. Just process that. Budget deficit
6: is a financial stability risk that this Fed has to respond to and commence yield curve control. And if it's unique to America, can you imagine the dollar weakness we're gonna see off the back of that? If we, remember what happened right. to Sterling right. off the back of that story. What happens to the US dollar if that starts to materialize?
1: The key thing you said, if, right? Because sure, what we've seen, sure. and it's a global issue, and what did we hear from Tony Dwyer? That basically, battery, uh, higher rates are bad because this is an entire world leveraged that it, to low rates. And it is not just a U.S.-centric issue.
0: Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
5: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, A 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
6: Joining us now is Sheila Kayalu, the senior equity research analyst over at Jefferies. Sheila, let's start with this story. Just how disruptive is this for the airlines currently?
8: It's disruptive, but it's manageable. What we've seen from Delta Airlines is they've cut their capacity to Israel through October, but I'm sure we'll see that change and schedules uh, be trimmed into the rest of Q4 and potentially into January, depending on how long the conflict lasts but it's manageable from a risk profile perspective that it's 1.5% of capacity for Delta, so not a needle mover, um, and that traffic might get rerouted to other European cities. So obviously a very sad situation, what's going on there, and ll is the carrier that is flying because they do have some ISR equipment on their aircraft. So. Um, for delta it's a financially manageable situation
1: there's a question though uh, about larger risk aversion to travel there have been other conferences that have been canceled or postponed in qatar and other places uh, in response to potential violence and just disruption in the region is there a sense that this could make any kind of dent in uh, some of the revenues or just the appetite to travel at a time of uh, incredible unease
8: Think it might pull back international traffic a little bit but we you know we seasonally expect that q2 and q3 are the biggest transatlantic uh mid-east travel season so we'll see it pull back into that in q4 um so the airlines already have that built into their capacity plans um and again that travel might get rerouted to that's holiday travel and leisure travel might get rerouted to other cities um, in terms of corporate, uh, more U.S. focused, Delta did see a ten point improvement this quarter. That was the first time they noted that. Um, corporate's kind of been stuck at eighty percent recovered. That's mostly in the U.S. I'm talking, but um, you know we did see some improvement to going back to work. So, um, not sure how much corporate international travel to the Mideast and that region uh, Delta has specifically, but we do think it'll be a manageable risk for for U.S. network carriers in general.
1: The Delta results actually put to rest some of the biggest fears, at least for now, that higher oil prices would seriously impede profits. It also raises questions about how much uh, they are unable to pass along some of those price increases to the consumers. What did you learn in terms of the reality on the ground of how airlines are managing some of their fixed costs and their ability to actually keep uh, airfares elevated?
8: So I think, um, you know, my thought into today was Delta's print was going to be in line and it's in line and that they were going to narrow to cut the guidance slightly and they did. Um, But I think as we have other network carriers and especially the low-cost carriers report through earnings season, this Delta print is going to come out looking much better. Um, You know, Delta did go to the low end of its guidance, but one of the factors to highlight here is they generated $2.7 billion of free cash flow year to date. And they're they narrowed their guidance to $2 billion of cash from $3 billion prior. That's due to higher maintenance and fuel. Um, so, you know, I think we're seeing the impact of that. Delta does have a long-term target of, uh, you know, billions of dollars of cash generation out there. So um, we, we could see those trim because of what's going on with higher fuel prices and uh, maintenance expenses also coming in higher, too.
4: How much more difficult is it going to be for these airlines to hedge for potential future spikes in jet fuel as they see this tragedy unfold in the Middle East?
8: None of the airlines outside of Southwest currently have a massive hedging program, uh, so they do it through other ways. Uh, for instance, to Delta, we, we'd highlight that 55 percent of their revenues are from other services, such as their Delta TechOps Network, which is a quite a unique feature they have. Um, that's differentiated and helps lower their maintenance costs. They have their loyalty program with Amex as well. Um, So they have other revenue streams. They really derive revenues from premium uh, customers. Uh, So they try to hedge it in that way rather than a direct hedge.
6: Can we finish there just on those loyalty programs? Changes over at Delta, Sheila, how are those changes working out?
8: I say I wish I could use a, a Sky Miles Club because I never have time. I'm constantly running around. Um, you know, and Ed Bastion is kind of taking a step back and saying they'll revisit the exact changes because of the feedback they've gotten, but it's just making it more difficult to to earn those points, given that they have such a high loyal uh, customer base uh, because they they do have a very reliable on time network, and part of that comes from their other revenue streams too.
6: I'm trying to work out if they're going to lose. Customers because of the changes they've made. Do you think they might?
8: I don't think so. Just because they'll they'll actually get me to where I need to go, so it's okay for me. But you know, and and they have such a loyal customer base. I mean, that's what's resulting in these changes to begin with. Is that they have too many loyal customers, so they're just making the tiers uh, slightly more difficult. So I don't. I don't think they'll lose customers. Perhaps you, you might, you know, swap a Delta and United, but you're not going to move to a different tier.
6: My colleague, Tom Keane would say right now we need the Brahma cam because Lisa has views on this, Sheila. Well, I just Big think, views.
1: hold on a second. First of all, this isn't people necessarily being loyal. It's people who get an American Express card. So if you get an American Express mm-hmm. card and then you get into the lounge and then the people who actually are flying don't access it unless they spend about a million dollars in actual ticket costs, <laughs> then you have to wonder why should someone stick with one airline rather than go to any airline that offers them the best fare that gets them to where they need to go?
8: Go. Um, I think also one thing to remember, which we haven't talked about, because there's been so many fears of airline profitability with fuel going higher, is capacity is still tight in the market um, to certain to certain city pairs, right? So it's not like you have tons of options. You you usually have one to two to pick from. So um, that's why airlines have been so successful gaining pricing so far. Um, especially we're seeing that in the international areas. Um, so. Yeah, I think I think that's why they're stepping back because they don't want to lose that customer base to that other carrier potentially, but I don't think you're going to see a massive shift.
6: Basically, they don't have to worry about losing that customer based on what I just heard, Sheila. Sheila Kajalu, there of Jeffries on the latest with Delta. Subscribe
1: to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg.
5: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.